Hey, welcome to our show. This is Graham Brown and Michael Waits from Tokyo and Bangkok, respectively. We are talking about the mega trends and meta trends that influence the tech ecosystem in Asia. Everything that influences investment and development. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Graham, I'm doing fabulous. Thanks for um, thanks for a great introduction. Look, I just wanted to say you and I met each other last summer. I thought we had a great conversation back then. I've watched all of the stuff you do on founderfm.com since then. And I just thought it would be a great idea if we got together and kind of continued and finished the conversation that we had that started back last summer when we talked about investing in Southeast Asia, both venture capital, private equity, all of the things that influence the tech sector out here. And what I wanted to do was get into deeper a deeper conversation so that we could follow up even on a weekly basis and try to figure out what the big things are and the small things are that are affecting those things, like you said, from an investment perspective, from a growth perspective, and really anything tech or all things tech as it pertains to Southeast Asia, Japan, and how the rest of the world influences us and how we influence them. I think it's a big topic, and I think we could continue to talk about this um, ad infinitum. And I, and I think we're going to start this week talking about a topic that's close to your heart and close to mine as well, which is artificial intelligence. Right. AI. Are we too ahead of time? I think, you know, this is going to be interesting, isn't it? Because we're in a, a sort of a, a unique position here in Asia, as I suppose as outsiders in a way, Michael, aren't we? Outsiders on the inside, if you like. We're sort of yeah. seeing Asia from both an outside and an inside perspective. I think, you know, we don't just want to talk about AI in that context, but every sort of tech trend that's going to happen here and in the future as well. So let's see what we can bring to the table. AI, what do we know so far about AI, Michael? Let's here's, here's, here's what I'll tell you. Three years after I was born in 1970, in 1968, you had 2001 A Space Odyssey, so one of Kubrick's right. seminal movies. And this entire movie was based on HAL. And this was all about artificial intelligence. That's 1968. It's 48, almost 49 years ago. Wow. So almost five decades. I know I hadn't really thought about when that movie came out, but this is how long and even longer actually that people have been talking about artificial intelligence. I mean, you go back and look at code breaking in World War One and World War Two, and they, mm. you know the Turing machine and all these things that people were trying to do to make machines more able to do the things that humans could do, but do them faster and more efficiently. Right. So if I said to you, and I thought this was interesting, actually, if I said to you, when was the first Ford Motor Company um, assembly line, when did it first come out? Do you have any idea what the year was? No idea. What, no what, idea. So well, 1913. Right. Okay. So it had to be right? pre-war, right? So It was pre-war. And his idea, obviously, was how can I make machines do things faster and more efficiently than a human can do so that everybody can have access to it? Right, And we see all of this stuff happening today, whether it's Google Now, where you have your phone or your PC that you can just ask it a question. Hey, Google, what time is the movie playing at the Cineplex, right? Mm -hmm. Or Amazon Alexa, the Echo. You can just, it just sits in your house and listens to you and waits for you to talk. It's really reminiscent to me of how. You just ask it a question. Mm. It can play music for you. It can answer all of your math questions. It can tell you. It can define colors. It can do everything for you. Apple, Siri, Microsoft, Cortana, even IBM, Watson, the whole idea behind Watson, right, was to take all of the, this information and put it into like a brain-like universe and atmosphere and then try to use that, whether it's healthcare or chess or mm. Japanese Go or anything. And this creation of artificial intelligence is now taking over everything that we do. We can talk later about what the impact is going to be 
um, regionally, locally, and also globally on people's lives and jobs. And what I would want to do is put it in the context of things we've seen historically. I like to set, take a historical precedent and try to apply it to the present so we can do that too. Right. But like, what's your view? If I said to you, do, so do you use Siri? Do you use Google Now? Do you use Alexa? Like, what do you think of these products? And what's, what do you think the impact is going to be from your perspective? particularly because you live in, in Japan? Like, right, do Japanese right. people use these things? Do they speak Japanese to them? What, what's your view on this? Uh, that's a good question. Well, yeah, I mean, I use Siri and I use, you know, the Google equivalent and so on. So I think what's interesting with AI, Michael, is it's kind of happening from the grassroots. It's being built up, you know, brick by brick from the bottom, right? You know, when I, I, I went to university in the, the early 90s and I, I studied computational psychology and I did artificial intelligence as you know my my thesis in my major right right and at the time it's kind of like probably it was the same as what was happening when you were at university like a few years earlier right it was like we we're still talking about these big top-down approaches to AI which is like let's build a machine that thinks like a human being right right and that was everything. That was the approach. That was very much that top-down approach to AI. And then, you know, it's kind of like, I think what's happening now is that what's really happening in the AI scene now is that these guys, so you've got Google, Apple, IBM, Intel, all these guys are building AI, but they're building it from the bottom up. So they're building these individual applications like Siri, for example. And they're not sort of approaching it like, you know, let's build an intelligent machine. They're approaching it to say, right, what's the problem that the user has Let's fix it in a semi-intelligent way. So they would approach it in what they would call machine learning, right? Which is basically pattern recognition, that kind of thing. So I think we sort of see this sort of second bloom of our AI, but from the bottom up. So AI as itself is very much a long-term goal. You know, it's what we see in the movies with the robots and all these humanoid type things going on, right? But effectively what's happening now is these large IT players have got a lot of money, a lot of brains behind these projects, and they're throwing them at effectively what are very bottom-up, grassroots, you know, small brick-by-brick brick applications of machine learning. And I think that's going to eventually bring us, you know, in maybe a generation to what the bigger dream of AI is. But right now, we're at these very much localized applications of AI. Yeah, I mean, I think you actually make a really good point, and that gets back to the meta thing that you talked about during the introduction of the podcast, and that is these really small individual pieces of data, which we've now decided kind of as a society that we're giving away to these big companies for free, hmm. right? So in the old days, you'd walk into, pick a place, 7-Eleven, <clears throat> Walmart, and they'd say, can I have your phone number or your email address? This is after we've had electronic devices for a while. And some people were slightly reluctant to give that information away, maybe your cell phone number. And now we've just opened up our entire lives to mm. companies like Google, companies like Apple, Microsoft, not so much IBM per se. And of course, the elephant in the room is always Facebook. If you think about the information that all these companies have, and Facebook in particular, where they know who you are, they know your age, they know your location, they know where you check in potentially if you use those services. They know your family and your friendship relationships, and they also know all the things that you like. And they continue to accumulate that data, not just on you, but on your peer group and on your cohorts. And they have all this information that they can then filter back in and use it on a meta basis to then help people decide, help machines, excuse me, decide 
what's appropriate or inappropriate for you. And the more data that they get, the more likely that they are to properly target stuff to you. And the more likely is that a machine can then do what you talked about, which is all of that machine learning. And all of these companies are racing to do it. And one of the biggest companies in Japan actually that's racing to do it, which is very topical, is SoftBank. Right. And if you go and do, and I know you have, but if you go and do your research on Masayoshi Son and look at the way he's built his business over time, everybody makes mistakes and he's made you know, his fair share of them, but the big bets that he's made over time have, have been very correct. When you go back and look at his initial investment in Yahoo, when Yahoo was a small company, mm. that made him his first fortune. When he then when he then went and bought the Vodafone business in Japan, I mean right. people thought he was psychotic, but then he turned that into the iPhone business in Japan. Now it's one of the biggest um, phone companies there, with probably the second largest subs to Docomo. Um, which, if you had known back it back when they started in two thousand and seven, you would have called him crazy. And now he's making a big bet on on AI, and he's mm -hmm. taking about fifty billion dollars of the hundred billion dollar fund that he's agreed to run with his Middle Eastern investment partners and invest most of that in the United States. And he's committed to investing a lot of that in AI. And frankly, the stock market agrees with him. So it's interesting to see, and, and SoftBank is one of those companies where there's a lot of foreign participation in, in the pricing and sort of the, the, the market of that stock. So both Japanese people and foreigners, foreign investors agree with him on his stance on AI. And that's one of the other confirmation points for me saying, sure, in, 19, in 1913, you had, you had Ford trying to build machines to do things that humans couldn't do as fast. In 1968, you had Kubrick saying, we're going to have a future where machines will do things that humans simply can't do. Hmm. And now I think in 2016 and the upcoming 2017, you're going to have people putting, you know, making lifetime bets on the fact that artificial intelligence is going to change the way not just the market perceives the investment community, but the way the market perceives the way we're going to live our lives on a going forward basis. And I think all these companies that we talked about are going to play a really big part in it. What do you, what do you think about that when you see these reports come out, Michael? Because you're, you're an investment man, right? You, your career was investment. You've seen people write reports about the next big thing. And we have this APAC intelligence report come out just the other week saying that AI market is going to grow by 47% year on year over the next five years. Do you sort of see that and think, okay, just hype. This is BS. This is a bubble. You know, I've seen this before, seen it with all the other kind of things that have come before it. Or do you feel like, yep, this is kind of like got some substance based on what you just said. So one of the reasons why I brought up the 2001 space odyssey earlier in the conversation was because I wanted to give a, an idea about how long people have been talking about this. In other words, mm -hmm. if this was the first example of this discussion, I would say this is hype. And I think to a certain extent, you're seeing that in the virtual reality space. It's yeah. just the components that are necessary to make virtual reality commonplace um, just aren't there yet. And you see that it looks like a company like Magic Leap, not to get off topic, actually faked some of their demo videos. Yeah. They actually hired somebody, right, right. To, to do some of their demo videos, which is fake. They've raised over a billion dollars at a $4 billion valuation. If those videos are fake, that's a real problem. Mm. If this were 1970, after the 2001 Space Odyssey movie and all the talk about artificial intelligence back then, I might say I think it's just hype. But I think we've reached, and I was talking to someone about this earlier today, I think we've reached an inflection point with the ability for technology 
to be able to process information in real time in a way that's never been possible prior. Mm. I think that now that all of that technology comes out of an ecosystem and a supply chain that sits essentially in one place, whether it's between Taiwan or Shenzhen in China, and all of those components have been, and all the technology and chips have been miniaturized so that they can all fit into a smartphone, it means that the amount of power, the amount of energy, the amount of heat that these devices throw off, and the fact that they're portable means that the confluence of all those things means that this is not hype anymore. And I, I thought that the introduction to this article, I mean, to this research that you were talking about was really interesting. They try to give a list of all of the, just the places where this thing could be applied, artificial intelligence. And they say that the market's bifurcated. Now, to me, bifurcation means split into two. Hmm. Right? We talk, talk often about the bifurcation of an economy. It's like rich people and poor people. But if you look at the list, it basically might as well just said everything. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. It starts with government and defense. It goes to the banking right. and finance sector, consumer goods, IT, healthcare, energy, utilities. It says everything except like babysitting and dishwashing. Right. Which I thought was kind of funny. Which is on the horizon, right? <laughs> yeah. But again, I don't think it's hype. I think this is happening actually. This is one of those things that I think you, you and I are going to wake up in five years and say, Might happen. You know, we talked about it. Right, right. But everybody else is going to wake up and say, when, when did that happen? You said earlier about, you know, this massive information. And, you know, you just look at the real basic applications. You take like Facebook, you know, all this information that it's gathering about us. And just in the very sort of basic applications, you've got things like, you know, the algorithms it uses to deliver that information in your feed, which is like a real basic, but that's a sort of, you know, a pattern learned over time, right? So that's mm. a sort of the very, you know, step-by-step, step one application of AI. But then you sort of take that up a few levels now and then you sort of apply that to all the kind of things and you know the verticals you talked about defense and construction or whatever it is right where people are gathering a lot of information and the the last few years we've heard about big data big data big data right but isn't the problem with big data is that big data requires you know a human being at the end of it to crunch all this information right so it kind of like you know is that the the push here because i wonder you know, now let's put this into the perspective of Asia. What is it about Asia particularly that makes this interesting? We've got, you know, the numbers. Well, you've got, well, you've got some of the biggest populations on the earth right here in Asia, right? Then you've got that, what you just mentioned, that mobile first environment, that culture where people are accessing, you know, some people don't even access, well, I say some, a lot of people don't access their stuff on their mobile phones right here. I mean, on their, on their laptops, right? On their laptops, right. Right. And then you've got, in some countries, like here in Asia, you've got this aging population in Japan, right? So that's a kind of another interesting angle, which is sort of a bit further down the line. But you've got these kind of like interesting input variables in Asia. I wonder if Asia is going to be a hotspot for this, or maybe, you know, it's really going to happen all in, you know, that little nexus around Stanford and so on. What do you think? I think the likelihood is that these things are going to grow up in tandem. But I will say this. The fact that this is more of a mobile component-based business, the fact that you don't need a data center um, with, a, with massive – you do need a data center with massive computers in it, but you don't need people sitting in front of PCs to give you all the information that are going to help you create the, the machine learning that are going to lead to um, AI. <clears throat> I think that fact alone means that what's happening in Asia and Japan – is, going to, is actually going to outgrow and going to leapfrog what's happening in the rest of the world. And I think we see it already happening with some of the accelerators here, like Xero, that are focusing 
mostly on just what's going on in, in, in Southeast Asia. And I think mm. we've also seen Microsoft dedicate a ton of money to invest in businesses in Asia that are focusing on AI. And you can take this company that they've invested in in China that basically will use AI to, to do this, right? So if you look at a, a, a mobile phone, it's actually not even a phone anymore. It's more just a messaging platform. Something like 85% of your interaction with your phone, which and that's, it happens just on messaging systems. So it's more than all of the other applications combined by a factor of like four or five, right? Hmm. And what that means is that people will then do something like this. They'll sit in with an AI bot on their phone and say something like, I want to order a pizza. Right. So a normal thing that people do, or I want to order Obento, if you're in Japan or anywhere else in the region. And people are used to doing this. And I can give you a list of companies that do this. So Ginja is a food delivery and food preparation company in Thailand. It's been funded. Um, and it, it has a it has an AI component to it on a chat on a chatbot. Hmm. Get Links, which is a um, an employment company, so it helps tech people find tech jobs in Thailand and the rest of Southeast Asia. Also has a chatbot. I'm looking for a job as a UX designer. Really, which country? It talks to you just like it's a human, right? And then Page Three Sixty Five, which is a company that helps um, people do what we call in Thailand F commerce, Facebook commerce. You log on to someone's Facebook page and you say, I want to buy this T-shirt. And it says, what's your home address? You fill it in. Do we have your credit card information? Have you logged? Like it has all of this information about you already. And once it does that, the AI takes over and you almost never interact with a human. Now, you might have a human monitoring some of this stuff. But I think because it's a mobile first society, because people don't necessarily have laptops and didn't start on the internet with their laptop. I think, and I think frankly, this is going to be a common theme. We will go this, go over this over and mm. over again. as we talk about what's going on here, this mobile first is going to be a really, really big thing. I think people are starting to realize in the, in the West that what's going on in Asia and in Japan will leapfrog them because it's mobile first, mm. right? But all of that stuff is going to happen. So the company that was invested by Microsoft in China, which does food delivery, they don't even have their own food and they don't do their own delivery. They just organize the AI communication with food delivery providers. And from an investment standpoint, this falls exactly into a category of things that I love and that I think I spoke to you about over the summer. And that is sitting on top of a platform, right? right? And consolidating something that's fragmented. So like five pizza restaurants, 25 Japanese restaurants, you know, 30 French restaurants, consolidating all of that information and using AI to provide the services that all of those things give just by using artificial intelligence. And the more you do it, literally it's like, it's almost like having a baby, right? Mm. You tell that baby, please sit down. It doesn't know what it means. And the more you say it, the more it learns. And then you talk about standing up and then you talk about eating and then it becomes self-sufficient. And if you can teach a machine through machine learning to learn that way, and I don't think we're that far away from that, then I think you can have machines provide services to people um, all over the region. I think a lot of that's gonna happen here because of the way society has been set up. The other really important thing that we haven't touched on yet is that a normal Indonesian or Thai or Philippine person or a person in, in Vietnam is their perception of privacy and control over the informa that information is very different than somebody in the West. How? Explain. Explain for those well, who don't know. Because they're, willing, because they're willing to give away information for convenience. Hmm. In other words, they're happy to give you phone number, age, gender, 
to get something in return. Right. Something like 90%, maybe 85% now of mobile phones or cell phones in Thailand are prepaid. Hmm. Right. So you have a, you probably have a monthly plan. Right. Right. You pay whatever thousand yen it is for unlimited this and unlimited that. But in Thailand, a lot of those phones, someone carrying an iPhone or someone carrying an Android phone, will go into a shop and buy. You know, I'm just going to make up a number: a thousand baht worth of service. It's about thirty U.S. dollars. And when that runs out, they need to go top up their phone again. And that could last them for a month, two months, or three months, depending on how much data they use and how many phone calls they make. Right. Um, and and that so because it's expensive in the context of what the normal GDP per capita is in the entire region, they're willing to get services for free, right? They're willing to mm. get services and give away data for free so that they can do that. And then that data gets fed back to them in recommendations and preferences and deals and a whole bunch of other things. Whereas in the United States and even in Europe where it's heavily regulated, you have to opt into all of those things and most people don't want to do it because they don't trust the fact that that data is going to be protected and they have a very different view on privacy. Hmm. So because of the prepaid um, system that happens not just here but in the rest of the region, you see a lot of people saying, sure, I'll give up my data to get free cell service. Hmm. Because that data has the same value to a cell phone provider and a data provider that the actual payment does, because on the other side, then they get paid for providing services by the service providers. It's a very different model, and because of that, the way the AI grows up in in Southeast Asia is go is going to be different. Right. And my view, and you can corroborate this for me, but my view on Japan is that because the population is aging, one of the sort of adages that I've heard over the past five years, right, is that the Japanese population got rich before they got old. Mm -hmm. Right, sure. so it's, very, it's very powerful, right? There's plenty of money to take care of them, but not a lot of people to provide those services. Yeah. In reverse, the Chinese people got old before everybody got rich, so you're going to have a different implementation of services there. Mm. The other thing about Japan is that you have a company like Fanuc, right? Yeah, which sits at the base of Mount Fuji and makes machines that makes machines. They've been in the artificial intelligence business and the robot business for decades. And while this is a publicly traded company, they give away very little, minimal information on what they're actually developing. And it would not surprise me if they have one of the most sophisticated artificial intelligence engines in the world. The robots that they build are second to none. And they literally have a factory filled with robots that build other robots. Right. Okay. So to me, the Japanese get this, right? And I think we talked about this last summer as well. When you start to see all of this investment activity take place not just in the United States, but in Southeast Asia, you're going to see a lot of that investment money coming from the Japanese mm. because of what's happened, because of the population size and the GDP per capita growth that's happening in Southeast Asia. And because AI is what's going to drive, I think, a lot of that growth in 2017, mm. I think you're going to see a lot of investment in those businesses going forward. And I already see it happening, like I said, in at least three of the businesses that I know that exist in Thailand. And that's definitely not a comprehensive list of those things. So you have this, I mean, if we go back to your earlier point about 2001, Stanley Kubrick, you yes. know, that, you know, as a seminal piece in sort of setting the scene for the future, I mean, that sort of opened the whole idea of AI up to, you know, the whole idea of robot intelligence, artificial intelligence up to the public, right? But at the time it was sci-fi, right? 
And that's kind of what it's been for the, the last three, four decades. But now what you're saying, if I can sort of summarize that, is that you, you've got now these sort of, you know, these factors which make it move from sci-fi to necessity. So you've got big, uh, you know, pools of information being operated by these large IT service providers, whether they're telcos or the Facebooks or the chat providers. And they need to make sense of it on a very small platform with a very you know, limited form factor bandwidth for people to interact with. And then you've also got these other factors, you know, like the aging populations and so on, which mean that the robots, which are all kind of very sci-fi in the day, are now becoming a necessity because, you know, people don't have an option. They have to invest in these things because of, you know, aging populations, lack of labor force, lack of skilled labor and so on. So mm -hmm. what's now, what was once 2001 and an odyssey, right, is, you know, a space odyssey was, is now becoming a daily thing okay. because, you know, we have to have it. We don't have an option, right? We have to make sense of all this stuff. We, we don't have the physical capacity to do it, whether that's, you know, 10,000 guys on the end of a computer, you know, managing all this data, like in the old days with the, you know, there's old voice recognition services where they'd manually transcribe your, you know, your phone calls or your voice messages, right? right, right. Or, 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 you know, a lack of people to, you know, build machines, right? Or, you know, plant crops in the field. So we've got these really interesting input factors, which I think is going to move it, as you say, from, you know, where we were into a new, new horizon in 2017. Absolutely. And I, and so you wanted to know what's the, what the difference is, right, between what's going on in the Western world and what's going on in Asia. And I'll, and I'll give you another example of this. Um, Uber just had a fight with the government of Cal with the government of California because they just rolled out some of their self-driving cars in San Francisco because they didn't believe that the existing laws covered what they were doing. Hmm. It didn't ban what they were doing. But in reverse, you have places like Singapore, which is also in testing where the government completely supports this, um, even though it does displace taxi drivers. And we should talk about the short-term dislocation that's going to take mm. place because of AI, something we have not touched on yet. All right. Um, but, but the governments here, both from a drone testing perspective, from a self-driving car perspective, which is all AI, right? I mean, a drone at some point has multiple cameras on it, has software in it, it learns where it is, it has a GPS, it knows all this data, and it flies on its own. You know, cars will do the same thing. But governments out here are much more supportive of that. Um, if for no other reason than getting back to the word I used before, they do want to leapfrog what's going on in the rest of the world. Mm. And they want to be a showcase for modern technology. And there's a real incentive for them to do it. Right? right. But I think I think what it does is, and I think the one thing we haven't touched on yet is, what is it going to do to employment? And what happens to humans that exist in those industries where artificial intelligence um, actually has impact and is going to grow pretty fast. And I think transportation is a place where we should really start that conversation. Right. Are we right. going to sort of see a new surge in the neo-neo-Luddites, the people with the pitchfork smashing up the machines? What's the reality here? I mean, where are we going to see so, the, the impact? So here's, a, here's, what I think, here's how I think this is going to go. And I've been pretty good, actually, <laughs> in my own mind about predicting where self-driving and autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles are going to go. So again, we, I'll ask the question, but I'll answer it because I don't want this to be like a, a quiz show. But <clears throat> if I asked somebody who one of the largest employers was in the United States, they'd probably say Walmart. Walmart employs 2.2 million people globally. 1.4 million of those people are employed in the United States. 
That's 1% of the U.S. workforce. That's a lot. If Walmart went out of business or for some reason just had to cut half their staff or three-quarters of their staff, there would be an uproar in the United States. Okay. It turns out, though, that in the transportation sector, there are something like 3-point-something million truck drivers in the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think the numbers on a, on a percentage basis are probably similar in Europe and in Southeast Asia, where a lot of things where the train systems are not nearly as good as they are globally. And a lot of goods and services, if you drive on the roads in Thailand, you see a lot of things being driven around in trucks. And frankly, those trucks are the most dangerous vehicles on the road. You know, because you've seen it. And you know when you drive from Tokyo down to Shimoda, the road splits, the tomek splits in two. Yeah, I'm a cyclist. I know full too well how dangerous it is out there. You know, right? But on the right-hand side of the road, it's it's the truck side. You can drive there if you want. But when, yeah. after the road splits, most of the cars stay on the left-hand side of the road. Part of the problem is that a truck driver is in, has an incentive not to be late. Mm. And that incentive means that they rush. They drive too fast and they drive slightly recklessly. But here's the thing. If you replace that driver, now remember there are three point something million drivers in, or people in the transportation industry in the United States. So if you displace all of those people, well, one, a few good things happen. One is truck drivers, trucks become much safer, Mm. right? So goods get delivered on time, fewer accidents, few people die. And I think in 10 years, we'll look back and say, why did we ever let humans drive trucks? It'll it'll actually seem quaint. And I think the same thing is going to happen out here. And there are actually people working on data-driven solutions. A company called Driver, D-R-V-R, is actually working on data-driven solutions in Southeast Asia based in Bangkok. Okay, I'm not an investor there, so there's no conflict of interest, but I do know the, the, the team that's doing it. And again, because such a hard, large percentage of things that gets transported here um, get transported by truck as well, and, and it's going to happen more and more, an, an automated truck is going to be a huge boon to a place like Thailand mm. and Vietnam, where they're contiguous countries. So Indonesia is different, right, because it's an archipelago. And the Philippines is different too, but on the main islands, those things are going to become really important, I think. But think about the short-term dislocations. If 3.3 million people lose their job in the United States, it's almost it's one and a half times the size of Walmart. Mm-hmm. You have to think about it in those terms. But in my mind, you're going to run through kind of a three-phase thing. Short-term dislocation, people are going to wonder, what are they going to do? what I call a medium-term consolidation. So things will consolidate as some of those people go to other jobs. And I'll give you an example in a second of what I think will happen. And then longer-term stability as things rationalize. People say, wait a second, that job's never coming back. That machine does it way better and actually makes everybody's life better, even though it's taken away some jobs. But here's what I think is going to happen on the transportation side. Here's where I think AI is actually going to be really cool, is that if you take a very well-established driver who has a high-class clientele, that man and woman is still going to be in very high demand because sometimes the people in the backseat of the car want someone with whom they can communicate. Mm -hmm. They want to ask that person in the car how many times they've driven to this restaurant. How popular is it? What are the things that are around it? Where should I go when I'm done? Now, maybe AI will do that, but people really want to interact with other people to the extent that they can. And I think those jobs will actually be higher paying because those pe- there'll be fewer of the people that can do that. And that's one way that this problem of lack of employment is going to be disintermediated. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, when we talk about historical precedent, the similar thing happened when Henry Ford started his first, um, sorry, his first production line. People wondered, 
what is going to happen to all the people that used to make um, whips and saddles and used to put shoes on horses? What are those people going to do? Sure, in the short term, they're going to lose their jobs. But in the longer term, they're going to become auto workers. And I think we're going to see the same thing happen. That auto job is going to go away. And the son of the auto driver, the auto worker, or the daughter of the um, truck driver is going to become a UI designer and an artificial intelligence planner and programmer. So I think that that happens over time. So short term, I think there's going to be dislocation. But longer term, I think things rationalize and everyone has a better life. And particularly in Southeast Asia, where all where people don't necessarily build as many cars or are involved in that type of, type of stuff. I wonder if it's easier in Asia, I mean, with that sort of disintermediation that you're talking about, that, I mean, that whole shift, it would be a lot harder in, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I would have thought it would be a lot harder in a place like US or Europe to adapt to that change because in, in a way, I, ironically, even though Asia is seen very much as a, a more traditional society in, in many respects, that, you know, in a, in a place like North America and Europe, you you, you change the truck driver industry. You have the unions, you have, exactly. you, you know, you have generational truck drivers, right? My dad was a truck driver. I brought, I grew up in a blue collar community. Whereas, yes. you know, you go somewhere like Bangkok, like everybody who lives in Bangkok came from outside, right? You know, they all came from the villages and they were uprooted from the villages and moved to Bangkok. Same as any city in Asia, really. Everybody came from outside. So there's no that, that generational continuity. They've already had massive change. So to inflict another change on a, a generation is like, well, you know, we're kind of used to it. I wonder, I mean, I don't know, am I overgeneralizing here? If you look at a place like Bangkok, you know, if you, you, these truck drivers were, were to lose their jobs, would they reinvent themselves and pick up new jobs? Or uh, Yeah, I don't, I agree. And I don't think there's, there are three generations of truck drivers out here because I don't think there are three generations of anything except um, <laughs> very, are very large business owners. But I don't say that pejoratively. I say that um, extremely complimentarily. And what I think is, you're right, but I think it gets, it gets more to the governmental structure and governmental influence as well. Like you said, once the unions or let's just call them vested interests, right, get involved, mm, right. they can then petition in some way, shape or form local, regional, you know, state governments or federal governments. Whereas in Asia, Kind of the government of Singapore, where there are six, you know, five and a half to six million people, makes a decision on really what the future of the country is going to be from a technological standpoint. Hmm. And frankly, the people just deal with it. And I think the same things happen in the rest of the region, and that's for good or, or for bad, right? And you can make a comment that say that says that, you know, Singapore itself is a very kind of benevolent but very powerful government. And I think what you see in the rest of the region here as well is the government kind of takes a step back and says, what can we do to make our society better for most people here? And I think they have they make a good faith effort to do that because the vested interests, <clears throat> first of all, there aren't so many of them. But second of all, they're not nearly as powerful because they haven't been around as long. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is that the free flow of information is just so much faster today than it was obviously in the 40s, 60s, or 80s, even in the 90s in the United States and in Western Europe, so that here when the decision gets made, if for some reason it backfires or it's just disappointing to way too many people, at some level the governments just reverse it because they're, one of their main um, reasons for being is just to be in power. Mm. And I think you're going to see out here, and I think you see it on a daily basis, the same reason why Singapore can say we're putting self-driving cars and autonomous cars, so we're going to test them here. Who's going to go against them? Yeah. 
Nobody. And I think that from a governmental perspective, that's what's going to happen. And again, it's the reason why drones can get tested here, but Amazon can't test them in the United States. This is going to be a, an issue that comes up, a rift that comes up many times, I'm sure, in our, our podcast, Michael. It's, and I get this a lot. I mean, I'm sure you're, you're, you're sort of friends who come and visit from America, and it's the same with me. They come from the West, so to speak. And they say, you know, Asia, it's not, you know, they talk about human development indexes and it's less democratic and all this kind of stuff. But, right. you know, at the end of the day, when they actually look at what's going on, I think people get a different perspective. And what you've just touched upon is something that's really an eye-opener for people coming from outside, isn't it? They think about these societies as being these sort of dictatorships in a way. But actually when they see what's going on and what's happening and how people's lives are changing, it's like, well, you know, see it from the inside and you get a different perspective on this totally. Right. I mean, I could spend an entire who knows how much time talking to you about the government in this country, which I think has done an incredibly great job of stabilizing things and making sure that the economy is growing nicely. And I think if you look at it from the outside, you'd say, sure, it's a military dictatorship. But from on a day-to-day -day basis, I think what the current government is doing is the best it possibly can to help Thailand. And I think it's the same thing in the whole region. Yeah. You watch the Vietnamese government, you can complain about Malaysia or whatever you want. But in the end, the average GDP growth out here is about 5% on average. And that's low because of some <clears throat> some recent kind of blips in what's going on in economic growth. It has been higher and it will be higher. But you look at what long-term growth in the West, particularly in the United States, is going to be, it's probably going to max out at like two and a half or three on average, right? Mm. So I, from a growth perspective, I think the governments here are doing a much better job than governments globally. And I think part of it is because they're trying to do things for everybody as opposed to just for some vested interests. Mm. Anyway, look, I think this has been a super conversation, a beginning conversation on artificial intelligence. Um, and there's a lot more to talk about. To be so continued, I, for sure. Yeah, def this whole conversation will be continued. And, you know, I, I just want to thank everybody for listening in. I want to thank you for participating as well. Um, I love having these conversations with you. And I can't wait to get back together again and, and handle, you know, a topic again ne next week. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Michael Waits, Graham Brown, the podcast with no name. I think we announced that. Exactly. We don't even have a name for this, but you know what the riff is. You know what the theme's about. There's more to come. Fantastic. Codename Snoopy. Codename Snoopy. Well, we'll reveal why that came about, I'm sure, at a future we episode. We can. Hey, Michael, just, to, uh, just, just in summary then, a couple of minutes, just summarizing up. Let's sort of nail our colors to the mask because this is the end of 2016. 2017's around the corner. Asia, I believe, is the future. We're both sort of in sync on that that sort Completely of theme Let, let's sort of just throw out there just a few riffs you know just very top level stuff what is going to be really exciting next year apart from ai we've done that what else should people look for let's just give people a flavor of what we're going to talk about in this podcast okay so i think inst the institutionalization from an investment standpoint of what's going on in the venture capital and private equity world i think it's going to be a very very large theme of what's happening out here and i think what you're going to see is Instead of a scattershot approach to investing what's going on in Southeast Asia, I think you're going to see what I like to call a more, a more curated um, look at company building, company growing, and company investing. I also think in 2017, again, from an investment perspective, you're going to see a much larger um, what's the involvement from people outside the region into what's going on here. And I think the watershed event there is the Alibaba purchase right, right. of Lazada and, and the recent Alibaba agreement with the Thai government to help the Thai government create 30,000 jobs in 
<clears throat> e-commerce, teach people about retail, teach people about best practices when it comes to distribution, logistics, and all of the things that are associated with providing the infrastructure for e-commerce. Those are two really large things that I think are going to happen. And I think you're going to see the investment community be less myopic, so start investing further away from their home base. And if nothing else, set up offices outside. There's too much capital sloshing around the world not to get invested here. Um, that's what I think. And I think you're going to continue to see, and I think it's going to get ramped up, this relationship between Japan, which has been one of the largest foreign direct investors in Southeast Asia, continue to grow that investment base and, again, institutionalize that more. Um, a, fourth, a fourth thing, sorry to interrupt you, but a fourth thing that I think we're going to see is a lot of the large Japanese corporations have kind of staked their claim. So Mitsui SMBC has said we're going to create a fund to invest in Japan but also outside the region. Toyota is investing. And I think what you're going to see is all of these big, well-known companies will do it. But now you're going to see, you know this word, Chiho. Right, so Fukuoka Prefecture has last year and the year before set up an investment vehicle and and to teach people about venture capital investing, and I think a lot of that money is going to get invested, start to get invested outside the region, and the easiest thing for them to do is to compete with the Chinese for investments in Southeast Asia. So these are some of the themes that I think we're going to talk about. Um, in the healthcare sector, I still think you're going to see a lot of things happening, and I think you're going to see massive consolidation continue in e-commerce and online retail in this region because I think there are way too many people doing it and not enough people making a profit. Logistics, again, not to keep going on, but logistics will be a gigantic thing in 2017 as that business starts to consolidate as well. Amazing. And we haven't even found anything to disagree on yet. I know, to come. We, will. we will do. But I'll add in one thing just so I nail my colors to the mask. I'm excited about Chinese tourism in Asia next year because I know there's so much talk about China and tourism, but there's this whole leisure class and it's impacting. Look at the numbers in Bangkok. You know, look at the numbers all over Thailand now, but also here in Japan. I'm yes. curious to see how this sort of expansion of leisure and China into the Asian region is going to be interesting. I mean, the, the seminal news for me last year was the purchase of the Iron Man franchise by a Chinese businessman. And well, that, that's like the, one of the biggest sports franchises in America. And it's such an American franchise. It's based in Hawaii. It's you know, all that sort of myth is based in the Hawaiian culture and so on. And now the Chinese have right. bought it out. You know, now they're bringing it to China. I'm just really excited to see how all that sort of leisure class, that money that's flowing into leisure at the moment in China is going to impact the Asian region as a whole. So that's something I can, that I think is going to be, you know, investors are going to need to sort of get on the bandwagon with that because that is going to flow next year. I can't wait to talk about that as well. Good, good stuff, Graham. Exactly. Yeah. Tune in next week. More of the same. We're going to, we're going to rock. We're going to talk about metatrends, megatrends in Asian region, live from Bangkok, Tokyo, Michael Waits, Graham Brown. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.